Hello and welcome to the Code Podcast, a podcast by the Quality of Government Institute at the University of Gothenburg. In this show, we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments worldwide. Hosting this show is Professor Victor Lapuente, and in this episode, he is joined by Giovanni Capoccia, Professor of Comparative Politics at the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. Victor and Giovanni will discuss how democracies respond to extremism in European and US politics. For example, how we should understand the relationship between Putin and Berlusconi, why radical parties have taken the space left by communist parties in European countries, if we are in a critical juncture of democracy right now, and whether democracy in the US runs the risk of extinction or not. Stay tuned to hear the discussion around these questions and more. And don't forget to like, share and subscribe if you liked the episode. Welcome to the podcast of the Quality of Government Institute, where we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments all over the world. Today in the podcast, we have Professor of Comparative Politics in the Department of Politics and International Relations and Fellow in Politics at Corpus Christi College, Giovanni Capocha, whose research focuses on the comparative study of democracy and political extremism within the European context, although now he's in the US, so we will also ask him about the similarities between the situation there and here. A major theme of Giovanni's research is the analysis of the causes and consequences of the strategies used by democratic governments to control extremist dissent. Many years ago, when almost no one in political science was looking at history, Giovanni started studying the the contest between uh, democracy and extremism in interwar Europe. So if Italy is a kind of laboratory of politics, as Burrochstein always says, where exotic products emerge like fascism in the 1920s or the Red Brigade in the 60s or Berlusconi and videocracy in the 90s, then Italian political scientists like Giovanni are probably also pioneers choosing to study, I mean, products that look like very exotic 20 years ago, such as uh, the rise of extremism and far right. But nowadays, everyone in the profession is is looking at it. So welcome to the podcast, Giovanni, and honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. I would like to start talking about the big and serious question of the fate of democracy in the world. But for that, let's start with a small and frivolous issue. In the middle of the negotiations to form an Italian government these days, we we have heard that Berlusconi seems to have renewed his ties with Vladimir Putin through exchanging lovely letters where Putin has called Berlusconi allegedly number one among his five best friends and had sent him 20 bottles of vodka. And in return, Berlusconi has sent him back bottles of Lambrusco. Should should we just laugh about this or not? Is is there any kind of rational political science explanation to what from the outset looks like a kind of irrational? Is this anecdotal or or categorical? What what do you think, Giovanni? Well, uh, Victor, thank you again for inviting me. Let me let me thank you again. I'm very happy to be here and have this conversation. Now, you mentioned the fact that Italy is often seen as the laboratory of politics and the producer of exotic political products. This is right, and probably the last one is Berlusconi. There are even more exotic products if you look back into history. You mentioned history before. 
not just fascism or, or Berlusconi, but think about the papacy, for example, an incredible, incredible Italian invention that has lasted a couple of thousand years, or city-states. Of course, there were the ancient city-states, but then the, the medieval city-states were these jurisdictional islands in uh, you know, a feudal and, uh, world. So uh, Italy does continue with then fascism in the, in the 20s and perhaps even Berlusconi in the, in the 90s of the last century to produce exotic political products. Now, coming to your question about what should we make of this uh, <laughs> love letters with Putin that Berlusconi declares having exchanged together with gifts as well, not just letters, a couple of days ago. Uh, well, the, my take on this is that, well, first of all, the personal friendship of Berlusconi with Putin is well known. He's never tried to hide that, even after Putin invaded Ukraine, even though publicly Berlusconi and his party, Forza Italia, have always had a position that in official votes, for example, or in official statements supported Ukraine and NATO and so on. However, he is resurrecting this, this relationship with Putin, I think, as a function of his position in the negotiation for the new government. Let me, let me clarify what I mean. There is a, a psychological aspect there, the, and there is a probably more important political aspect here. The psychological aspect is probably that Berlusconi doesn't find himself in a comfortable position for him in the negotiations for this government. He has never been a minor ally in this coalition. Never. Either he was the uncontested leader, the leader of the largest party that would uh, include parties that would be otherwise shunned by the rest of the political system, or it has been the challenged leader by some other leader within this party, and he always won these challenges by kicking out these other people or determining their political retirement and end. Now he is number three in a coalition where he sees number one, Meloni, uncontested, and number two, Salvini, who has lost the election, but he still has more votes than him, as his political creatures. So he doesn't like the situation of having to negotiate to obtain a few ministerial posts that are those that are closest to his heart, given his personal interests, like, for example, whoever is in charge of telecommunications or whoever is in charge of justice in, in the government. So I think these letters with Putin and the bottles of vodka and so on are a function of this. Meloni has expressed a very strong pro-NATO position from the very start. And she's got to the point to say, of saying that um, unless the components of, uh, unless the allies in the government are not entirely on board with this, she will not form a government so that you don't get clearer than this. And so he is using this as a leverage. So it's, it's like a signal to say, if you don't give me what I want, you won't be able to form this government. I can take my votes of my, my seats elsewhere. And there are other solutions because my party is centrally located and centrally positioned in uh, the political spectrum. And there might be the space for a new coalition, a different coalition. Of course, Berlusconi, and I finish with this, I don't want to take too much time on this, 
let's say, frivolous aspect, but quite important for the negotiation. That's the political side of it, as I said. Of course, he also has a problem, meaning that he might lose MPs to Meloni's or, or, or other parties, also because he's pushing 87. He's just turned 86, and therefore there is the problem of retirement looming and what would happen after that. Who knows? But at that stage, it's not clear if he retires, let's say, in two, three years. Uh, it's not clear that he still has the time, let's put it this way, he still has the time to ruin the chances of Meloni's premiership. <laughs> that's, uh, I think that's the way we should interpret this. I don't think the Forza Italia uh, or um, coalition will uh, undermine NATO efforts uh, in, in Ukraine. The particular case of Italy, because can help us to illuminate what's going on in, in the rest of Europe, because we can say on the one hand, well, there is uh, the rise of the far right in many different countries. So and many analysts are seeing this as a kind of break with the past. But others could say, looking at Italy, well, we have had this kind of coalition of the center right headed by Berlusconi but also with alliances with Fini or now with uh, Meloni, sometimes one uh, as a main actor or sometimes the other as the main actors, going on for over 30 years. So there is a kind of, of continuity here. And, and I would like to ask you about this, about the break or, or continuity, because we see that uh, now in many European countries, on, on average, more or less, we have uh, close to one-fifth of the votes that are going to these far-right parties recently in Sweden. We have the Sweden Democrats gaining the second position with 20% of the vote in the national elections. A few weeks afterwards in Italy, 26% for Brothers of uh, Italy of Meloni, but also Matteo Salvini won uh, nearly 9%. In France, over 40% in the second round of the presidential elections for, for Le Pen. So north, center, south of Europe, three very different countries with different situations. Sweden has, for example, very healthy public finances, Italy pretty bad ones. But elections also dealing with different issues, criminality in, in Sweden, uh, European Union in, or so on in, in Italy or France. But we have the same guys benefiting from this, the same political family. So why? What, what is driving them from your perspective as a, as a researcher and observer of the, of the European reality in these latest two decades? Well, as you know, the literature on this is immense. So I'll uh, do my best to try to summarize the main axis of that here. There are two main issues here. One is identity and the other one is inequality. So uh, you're right. These parties have been growing. They are about 20% um, badly counted in all the countries in Europe, east, north, northwest, south, and so on. So these are different countries, but you have somehow different versions of the extreme right or the radical right, as it's sometimes called, coming up. Sorry, are... which label do you prefer? Do you prefer far right, radical right, neo-fascist, uh, national populists? These labels are, are leading. All of them are. There is a consensus in the literature, or let's say a quasi-consensus in the literature, to use radical right for the parties and that are that tend to break through into the system and be accepted by the other parties and extreme right for the more fringe movements. I am not sure I agree with that. I, I don't think, given the laziness of these terms, I don't think there is a going to be a full consensus anytime soon in the literature. The, the general consensus is what I said before, radical right versus extreme right. Then, of course, there is a strand of literature that talks about neo-fascism and fascism. I think I'm thinking about Finkelstein's uh, work, for example, from New York. 
to say that these are just the incarnations, modern incarnations of, of fascism, right? Other people contest that. So labeling is not a neutral, it's never been a neutral act. So uh, I, I think now we are simply at the level of intersubjectivity. We should understand each other, what, what we mean by in each conversation and then we may, we may land on, uh, uh, let's say, a generally accepted label. Going back to the point that I was making before, after the end of the Cold War, there has been, a, let's say, a, a resettlement or, or a change in European party systems, of course, in the East, because these are new democracies that came up, but also in the West. In the East, obviously, the new democracies came up in a moment in which the organization of political life didn't look the same as it looked in Western Europe after 1945. At the time, the socialist parties were very you know, strong, and the idea of a party was based on a strong territorial organization. Media were not that developed, and so on. In the 90s, the situation is completely different. So the, the very entity of a party in Eastern Europe is different from, uh, just after the transition, is different from the West of Europe after the transition. So, but even in the West, after 1990, you see a change, a higher, much higher volatility of the electorate and a resettlement of the ideological divisions, because all of a sudden, the big, let's say, structuring factor of this party system, communism in the East, simply vanished in the air. And so, the, again, uh, an interesting case, by, by no means paradigmatic, but certainly interesting, is Italy. The whole Italian party system was structured in order to resist the largest communist party in Europe. Again, this makes Italy a bit of an exception, but the same kind of processes you see elsewhere, perhaps not so intense. Once communism disappears and the communist party itself goes through a very painful change, changes name, changes uh, you know, leadership, and so on, a lot of people start thinking, okay, why should we vote for these other guys? There's no reason to vote for the Christian Democrats or the socialists, or you know, because the, their main function was to preserve our political system against the communists. And now the communists are no longer there, votes are much freer. And that's where you see the Northern League coming up, skyrocketing, really, and presenting completely new issues. Now, this doesn't happen in other countries with the same intensity, but it does happen. And uh, this leaves less a lot of votes free in a certain sense and leaves space for new parties to emerge. And those that have gained this space are mainly these radical right parties. Now, uh, going back to the, to the issues, of course, as we know, inequality has gone up. It's been going up after the, the 90s, and now it's at the level, depending on which country you get, you, you look at, but in some countries at the level of the 1880s or 1890s. And uh, this also has a geographical dimension. So the financialization of the, of the economy, the globalization, uh, ship industry to China, essentially, and the Europeans have become consumers. But all of a sudden, this creates in the European peripheries, in, in the peripheries of each state, that is to say in the rural areas, basically the small places, creates uh, economic wastelands. So some countries have kept their industrial base at like Germany or Italy, much less so France, but other countries have been completely stripped of that 
And therefore, this creates difficult social transitions. It's not just a matter of being poorer, but also a matter of being poorer and excluded from certain processes of creation of uh, prosperity. And the other thing is, of course, the much, much more pronounced uh, immigration from the south of the world that brings people from different culture and, uh, you know, different countries and different religions sometimes into European countries and therefore poses a problem of identity, preservation of uh, European culture for some parties and so on. That, that again gives these parties a lot of space in order to win votes by simply having this identitarian, this identity-based discourse. So I, I think these are the two main axes. Uh, we could go on forever on this, but in the interest of time, I'll stop there. Yeah, I think this is very interesting because we are pretty familiar with these two explanations of the identity inequality. But what you have explained us just now on the historical explanation, how this might also be related with the space left by the disappearance of the communist threat and how that freed votes in many European countries and how the Lega or other similar parties have been taking advantage of that. And again, Italy seems to be kind of a laboratory for what we have seen in, in many other, other countries. So our, the question now would be up to which extent these parties in Western Europe are a danger for democracy. They obviously are in Hungary and in Poland, but the question is why not in Sweden or Italy once that say that Europe has stopped being exclusively a, a club of uh, consolidated democracies or liberal democracies because according to some accounts, Hungary and Poland do not fulfill at least on the, on the criteria. Or on the other hand, those that are scholars or observers that are a little bit understand, try to understand or are closer a little bit to, the, to this uh, far right, they say that Quite the opposite, actually, this uh, far new far right, this radical right or, or extreme right even, are defenders of a sort of radical democracy, of direct democracy through referendums, for example, like the Brexit or the referendums proposed by Le Pen. So they basically are discontent with the traditional parties. They want to replace them, but replace them by the will of the people, not the will of the enlightened autocrat. We don't want an extraordinary man like Mussolini or, or, or Hitler to rule us but an, or the ordinary masses to take the decision. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, um, th there's a lot there. So let's try to, to take us an issue at a time. So are these parties a danger for democracy? These parties that have been around for about 30, 40 years, depending on which case you, you, you look at, and have become very strong now, typically they were framed two ways, right? One theoretical lens to look at them in the 90s, let's say, was, uh, okay, these are neo-fascists. And now the new form of fascism is racism, okay? And that's what they do. They basically oppose immigration, but they oppose it because they are racist. And this is what, for example, was said about the Front National, not without reason, perhaps at the time, right? The other way to look at them was, no, no, these are single issue parties. These are parties that look at immigration. Right? They, they don't want to have immigration from poorer countries, and they oppose that. And they might do that because they have a form of perhaps nationalism in their ideology. It's not completely well expressed, but it's certainly ethnically based. And this is what drives their 
their opposition to immigration, but essentially they don't have another regime in mind. They have opposition to immigration, which is a specific policy. Then if you look at other countries, specific countries, they might have another policy. For example, in Switzerland, there was the automobile party, right? So that there was against immigration, but also in favor of other things and so on. This has changed now in both respects. The issue of are these parties neo-fascist or non-neo-fascist, as I said before, it still exists, but it has become more marginal in the debate. There's, a, there's an interesting debate on that, but it's less mainstream in the, in the research on these parties. And on the other hand, nobody really thinks about these parties as single-issue parties anymore. Also because they have developed, let's say, a discourse on other issues like law and order, for example, or others. But also because, in my view, things have changed. I started to change with Putin, but they definitely changed with Orban in the following sense. In the pre, let's say, in the Cold War world, you had liberal democracies and communist regimes or, you know, some form of right-wing authoritarian regimes. And it was pretty clear that political pluralism was on one side, and on the other side, there was political monism, as we can call it, as the opposite of pluralism. There were different parties in communist regimes, as we know, but they didn't count. They all, you know, they, they collaborated. Basically, they were the appendices of the ruling communist parties in, uh, you know, military regimes. There was no party and, and so on. So, but there was no, no pluralism, no competition, not even the appearance of that. With the end of the Cold War, this changes in the sense that authoritarian regimes are put in place that include some form of quasi-competitive elections. I should say fake competitive elections, but with different parties competing. But the playing field is so tilted in, the, in favor of the authoritarian incumbent that there is competition, but the authoritarian incumbent either by because people vote for them just because they are induced to do so by the uneven field or because there's fraud or because of both. They constantly or almost constantly win elections. So this changes the game in a, in a certain sense. And where it really started to change the game for European right-wing parties is with Orban after 2010, and in particular after 2014, when he wins elections, again, after changing the constitution. And then even more with, as you mentioned, with, with Poland, that is basically going on the same, down the same road as, as Orban. Why does it change the perspective? Because Orban already, I think in 2014, clearly claimed a different democratic legitimacy. That is that of an illiberal democracy, as he calls it. And that's the, the type of truer democracy that you mentioned in your, in your question. So this connects, of course, with, with what Putin had already done in previous years. But, you know, for European parties, Russia is kind of a different world, so they won't have a lot of mileage by saying, well, you look, we will do like Putin. They do say that. Think about Marine Le Pen, think about, uh, you know, others, Zemmour in France or, or other parties like that, that are admirers of Baudet in the Netherlands, that are admirers of, of Putin, okay? But now that admiration has moved from the political regime to the kind of traditionalist values that, in their view, of course, Putin would represent. Well, for the institutions, for the model of regime, they are all more or less admirers of Orban and also of the Polish law and justice government. Because they say, and that's the, the new rhetoric, that at this age doesn't include just a bunch of issues, but includes a different model of regime. 
this is the true democracy because democracy, democratic decision-making has been hijacked by courts, by media, by supranational regimes or even international regimes that take away, that are politically unaccountable, that's the rhetoric, and take away political decision-making power from the electorate. So what we want is give back this power to the people, so-called the people, and therefore invest directly with democratic legitimacy, a government, a majority and a government that then has the right to curb the power of all these other checks and balances, because that's what they are de facto, and aggrandize its own power. Many parties, even Western Europe, have this rhetoric now. Now, they may not say we will do exactly like Orban, but they are certainly not concerned by what Orban does. So they, not, they are not saying this is undemocratic. They are saying, well, you know, this is Hungary. We are, let's say, in France. We will do this differently. But that is, of course, democratic. The people are voting. The people are electing Orban. The people like that. And he has democratic consensus. And therefore, he can do what he is doing. The fact is that now it's impossible basically not to elect Orban because he controls the entire economy, he controls the entire state, he controls so many things. But this is never talked about by people like Le Pen or people like Meloni or people like the Dutch Baudet or, or others. So this is the, the shift that has happened. Now these parties have, at least at the rhetorical level, a regime image. Yeah, I think there is a uh, aggregate data that clearly uh, supports what you are saying. Uh, electoral autocracies, I think, have become the most frequent system in the world, more than democracies or straightforward dictatorships. And this is a slow process, as you are mentioning, that comes back to Putin or to Orban, and definitely after after the Great Recession. And I would like to ask you about this. In first, people say that Orban could be a pioneer of a new style, as you argued, of a new democratic legitimacy. Others would say that maybe he's the last samurai of communism or of the victims of communism in the sense that his support comes from a lot of people, many of them old, uh, that are resentful with and uh, disappointed with the results of democracy. And some way or another, they were socialized in the low trust uh, communist uh, regime. So I, I would like to know your, your opinion on this. And, and let me put it together with your, with your research, because you are one of the world's most known scholars in the study of critical junctures, which technically can be defined as moments in times that close off alternative options and lead to the establishment of institutions that generate self-reinforcing path-dependent processes. <laughs> Definitely too much too much jargon here, but maybe could you give us uh, some example of, of historical critical juncture and do you think that we are precisely now in one of these critical junctures for, for democracy? Yes. So let, let me take this from the beginning. A critical juncture, to define a critical juncture, in my view at least, you need to define the institutional unit to which the critical juncture refers. So a critical juncture in the development of what exactly? I say that uh, with my co-author in the first paper and then in a series of papers that I wrote by myself later, this is an interest, is a necessary corrective to the idea that was 
predominant before, the critical junctures would be this just this broadly defined or vaguely defined rather moments of upheaval where everything seems to be possible, but then uh, only something happens. That is too vague. And that, of course, opened the, the was vulnerable to the criticism by people like Kathy Thiel and others as well, but not everything is up for grabs and so on. But this the, the question was badly posed. In, in the sense that we need to identify what we're talking about first and then look for a critical juncture. So whether this is a critical juncture for democracy as a whole, probably critical juncture is not the right term there. I would say this is a difficult phase for liberal democracy, for sure. It's in crisis everywhere, everywhere where it, it exists. Also, democracy as such is in crisis in places where you, perhaps you don't have this um, level of articulations or checks and balances and constitutional structures, but you do have genuine elections or you did have genuine elections. Now these are being rolled back in various ways. So democracy is in crisis both in the more advanced system and in the, the younger democratic system that have emerged that emerged before the, the 90s or in the 90s. So that I would talk about a generalized crisis. When we talk about critical junctures, we should look at a specific institutional constitutional unit. So is this a critical juncture for the EU, for example? Yes, it is, because it's clear that the clash today in the EU is between different visions of the EU, a vision that says the EU needs to deepen and become uh, more, uh, more of a political decision-making body and others that say, oh, no, no, we like the EU, but we want the EU to do virtually nothing and everything should be repatriated to, to the states. So the next couple of years will be important to, to settle this question, or not to settle, perhaps to, to steer the EU in one direction or, or another. This is the way I would put the analysis of this, this current moment using the, the critical juncture. If you want historical examples of, of critical junctures, there's very interesting work. For example, I, I cite the work by Turner on Hitler. Clearly, what happened in January 1933, he researched that very closely. There were still options. So it wasn't democracy was gone, but Germany didn't have to become Nazi regime. It could have become a military regime. It could have become an autocracy of the more traditional kind. I imagine what consequences this, this difference would have had for the history of the world. Another very nice study of um, Tom Ertmann, for example, uh, in, a, in a volume that I co-edited, uh, talks about 1832 in Britain as a critical juncture. There's a moment in which very few decision makers and very few decisions are crucial to set a party system, like in the case of, uh, of Tom, on a certain path. And this has long-standing, long-lasting consequences. In this case, he talks about the predominance of the Conservative Party on the right end of the of political spectrum in the UK. This didn't have to happen. It was, his thesis is, at least, that he uses this framework to understand what happened in, in Britain in those, uh, in those years. Thesis is that um, the predominance of the Conservative Party, even in the in the interwar years, you know, with the consequence that that had on controlling the right wing of a political spectrum in Britain in the interwar years, was set by certain decisions taken a century before, because it created certain institutions that, that created certain incentives that then led to the party system to align in a certain way. So that's that's what I would say. So. If we want to use the critical juncture concept, we need 
to link it to a specific institutional unit and then research quite deeply what happens in that unit. I would add just one thing to, to close on this question. Sometimes critical junctures are perceived only by like retrospectively in the sense that not necessarily the people acting in 19 in January 1933 to give an example as I said before that Turner researches so well may not have been aware of the drama of the dramatic consequence that the certain decision might have had one way or the other in other cases they are aware but the level of awareness is different across actors what I see on the current situation in the current situation is that many more actors than perhaps in past similar situation have a sense of what could be called the tragic vision of history. One of them is Emmanuel Macron, for example, the president of France. He says very clearly, has said many times, history is tragic. We should not take anything for granted. Anything can happen. And we should say we should not take democracy for granted. We should not take prosperity for granted. We should not take any of this for granted. So these things can slip away and we need to do something to avoid that. It's uh, very interesting this debate. Probably, as you say, we will not know until in maybe 10 or 20 years whether we are living a second 1930s. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not. Or maybe, as other people say more kindly, what we are experiencing now is a new 1960s. But instead of having an anti-system movement on the left, we have an anti-system movement on the right, but it will not have um, terrible consequences for uh, the democracy. And in that sense, we can go to, to America in a recent article of yours, Biden's wake-up call. You echo mm -hmm. President Biden's recent speech in, in Philadelphia, stating that democracy in America runs a serious risk of, of extinction. And the question is, well, some people could say, well, there have been other critical periods in the 60s or in the 70s with real assassinations, also in the 30s in, in America, and, and democracy, except for the civil war, let's say, survived without uh, turmoil, major turmoil, let's say. What is the difference now? What makes Biden and many observers, journalists and analysts and others be particularly worried? Because on the one hand, we can say that we political scientists are catastrophists and like weathermen, we are just too focused on the hurricanes and not so much in the, in the good weather. But but is there any concerning uh, trends that on, on America that the, the rest of the world should um, take note? Yeah, a great question. Let me start by saying that it's true that political science tend to focus on the big disasters, big events, and often these are big disasters, let's put it this way. In my little corner, I try not to do that in the sense that, for example, in the book that you were mentioning at the beginning of this conversation, I try to focus on what avoided the disasters. And so on the surface, you don't see the disaster, but actually it doesn't mean that the disaster could not have happened. And I mentioned this because this is exactly the way I see Biden's speech now. In that book I talked about, to get out of the metaphoric speech here, I talked about cases of democratic survival in interwar Europe that were not necessarily always going to be cases of democratic survival, where democracy was challenged by anti-system parties at least to the level that democracy had been challenging countries that had collapsed as democracy. But these ones uh, in, the, in the countries that I look at, this challenge was 
rolled back, was fought against successfully. So what is different today in America between vis-a-vis other periods of turmoil? And you're right, America did have other periods of turmoil, thinking about the 70s, but also before in the last century, in the previous century. The difference, in my view, is twofold. The first one is the 6th of January, uh, 2021. The um, event, both in concrete terms, this was an, in, an, an attempted insurrection that stormed the capital, the capital, and even more in symbolic events. Right, I'm thinking about the word of the work of, of Bill Sewell here on uh, transformative events. At the symbolic level and at the at the practice, this was a pretty unprecedented. Event. I mean, to go back to similar event, we really need to go back to the, the civil war or something like that. So what is the other difference is that the, the Republican Party today has moved to anti-democratic positions, especially in relation to this symbolic event. So both not just the electors or many electors or the rank and file or the members or, you know, the sympathizers, the members, the militants of the Republican Party, but also the elites of the Republican Party, or most of them in any case, almost all of them, they tend to condone this event, not as a moment in which American democracy was seriously threatened and could have died, because if Trump had managed to stop the election of the legitimately elected new President Biden, it's difficult to see how America today could be called a a democracy, there would have been a cascade of events following that that certainly would have changed the face of the American political system. They don't consider that as a moment in which American democracy was at risk of death, but they consider that as a moment in, of tragedy. I'm using the words of Mike Pence here. Mike Pence, whose life was threatened in that very event, goes out and says after a few months that that event was a tragic page in the book, in the history book of democracy. Uh, somehow absolving the participants, uh, I don't know whether he wants to absolve also Trump, whose role in organizing this event is becoming more and more evidenced through the work of January 6th committee, but certainly was absolving the insurrectionists. So when a party is entirely on these positions and doesn't even condemn an attempted insurrection on the parliament, something has changed. Something is deeply different from the previous moments. And that's where Biden's speech come in. He took away any doubt and any ambiguity. He gave the speech in Philadelphia, a highly symbolic place. And he said with so many words, American democracy is at risk of dying. And he called the attackers of democracy in America, the MAGA Republican, the, the Make America Great Again Republican, i.e. the Trumpian Republicans, and he, he appealed to the Democrats and the non-Trumpian Republicans to get together and to stop this. The problem is that the non-Trumpian Republicans are fewer and fewer because the control of Trump and his people on the Republican Party is becoming stronger and stronger. There's very little opposition left in the party, if any. Now, this might change, and if it changes, then there's obviously more uh, hope. But if it continues like that, then American democracy will be continues to be at risk of a collapse. Uh, well, let's uh, finish our conversation with, with the solutions to all these <laughs> problems. And, and I think you also have been a forerunner 
in discussing some of these solutions. No, the, there is this democratic dilemma of how much freedom we have to grant to the enemies of freedom. And this has an important debate for legal theorists. But as you have written, in contrast, political scientists have paid much less attention to how democratic regimes can navigate this dilemma in practical terms, no? namely how, how and why democracies actually can respond to the actions of anti-democratic groups. So I know it's a very broad question. It's it's difficult, but if someone is qualified to answer, I would say you are among the the group, few group of privileged people who can answer that. And I would like to know your opinion, to the very least, on on this concept of militant de democracy, like defined as policies that in a democratic state, like in Germany, for example, limit the rights of expression and participation of perceived as anti-democratic actors or anti-constitutional actors. On the one hand, I really like it. I see Germany and I see those restrictions. That that work. But on the other hand, I, then I go to Spain, I see how several parties claim for the banning of separatist parties in the Basque Country and in Catalonia, arguing that they go against some articles of the Constitution, such as territorial integrities, therefore they need to be banned. And they point out to Germany. So <laughs> I am not very convinced that that would work. So I would like to know your opinion in general or in particular about, about this issue. I let me say right away that I agree with you that that would not work. Uh, actually, that not only would not work; it probably might make things worse. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's uh, that's no. So my my interest for militant democracy, which has, is defined as you as you just defined it, was due to the fact that this seems to be a phenomenon that is present in many liberal democracies, but not understood or studied at the same time. I am not an advocate of militant democracy. I am not a somebody who thinks that that's a solution to the problem of, let's say, radical opposition. No, that's not, uh, that's not the problem. It's a matter of uh, conceptualizing and studying an aspect of liberal democracies, because these are liberal. You mentioned Germany, you mentioned Spain, you can mention all the West European democracy, that's what I'm working on now. These are all liberal democracies that, however, include different levels of restrictions to parties that, as you say correctly, are perceived as being anti-democratic or anti-constitutional, anti-system. So my question is, uh, oh, given that these uh, restrictions are not just on paper, if you're in Germany, you know that this is not true. These parties, uh, parties or groups or individuals have been restricted and repressed in different moments of uh, contemporary German history. And so it has happened in other countries like Italy or Austria or uh, France to some respects or, or others. So my, my question is, what drives these differences? What drives differences in uh, the apparatus that is put in place what drives differences in the ways in which this apparatus is used and so on. Clearly, this is not a solution to the problem of polarization or radicalism and so on. It's just an aspect of that solution, perhaps in some specific circumstances. If you want to talk about solutions, this is what most political science doesn't talk about, in the sense that, for example, take the literature on today's crisis of democracy that we talked about before. The typical book on that is 300 pages on whatever problem is there, polarization, identity, politics, inequality, erosion of democratic checks and balances, manipulation of voting rights, all that. And one page at the end on what to do about this. That is generally not 
very well thought through. And so in another project that I have now is parallel to the one that I'm completing on different levels of restrictions. I analyze uh, different actors of restriction with it's a collective project. The state can use restrictions like the, in the militant democracy style, if you want. Then there are parties that could use different levels of activity in order to counter so the violation of constitutional informal norms on the part of extremists, the civil society reactions with mobilization, with pressure, with various forms of, uh, of activity. And then there's, of course, the conditions under which the voters can defect from autocratic party or, or anti-system party and therefore and, and go back to voting for more centrist parties. All this to say that um, I believe that political scientists and comparative politics people should pay more attention, not just to the problem, but also on what to do to what to do about the problems, which seems to be a very urgent issue today. Thank you very much, Giovanni. We could probably be talking for, for, uh, for hours, but I think we need to stop. Thanks for the conversation and for sharing your insights on the rise of populism and the threat to democracy and how to tackle it. Looking forward to having you again in the podcast when, we, when you release your new book on the potential solutions to cure democracy. And thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.